speed check. Okay, I'm on now. Well, I, um, this won't be a surprise to any of you. I love food. <laughs> no, I really, really love food. But chances are you love food too. Because I've seen some of you eat. I've eaten with some of you. I've had some of your cooking. You love food too. So I want to actually, I'm interested in you guys talking to each other about what aspect of food do you love? Because I think there's, food is not, you know, people like food for different reasons. So have a chat to the person around you, next to you. Uh, say hi to them if you don't know them. And talk about what you particularly love about food. Go. All right, I know, I know we could go on forever, especially I, I, there are some, some of you here who are foodies because I see your Instagram feed and it's only ever food. Um, but I take it that none of you said, I love food because it keeps me alive. Like probably that's generally not going to be all people love about food, right? As we know, there are different aspects and I reckon people would have said different things. So maybe for you, it's just the obvious, that you love the taste of food, you love the, the sensation of food. But the great thing about food is, of course, it's not just taste, is it? Five senses are engaged. It's one of those very rare things in life where you get all five senses engaged in food. Great food is, is visual, it's sound, it's sight, that's visual, it's taste, <laughs> it's touch, <laughs> all right? It's every part of food is, is designed to appeal to the senses. Maybe that's what you love about food. Um, or maybe, because a lot of you, are like me, are from uh, ethnic backgrounds, then it's the social aspect of food, right? Like, there's nothing more. I mean, you can have the best meal, but if you're having it by yourself, it's just not the same. And you can have the worst meal. It could just be spam and eggs, but you're having it with other people, and all of a sudden, it becomes more enjoyable, right? It's a social aspect of food. Maybe that's what you enjoy. For others, and this is definitely not me, it's the nutritional aspect. No, it really isn't me because I like having HSPs, right? So <laughs> zero nutrition. Um, nutritional aspects. So some of you, I've got friends who really care about uh, what food does and the kinds of food that will um, make you healthy. And they know the difference between, you know, probiotics and prebiotics. They know um, how food can fuel you if you're, if you're an athlete and you're training for certain athletic things, what kind of foods you have, protein, carbohydrates. Again, this is not me, all right? But the nutritional aspect, there's a lot in that as well. You eat crazy things like kale which is like a weed, basically. But anyway, um, uh, now, what's my favorite aspect of food? I, I think all of them, minus the nutrition one, I really like. My favorite aspect, though, is this, that food is memories. Have you thought about that? Food is memories. Like, if I asked you, what is your earliest memory, and can you associate that memory with food, or if you can't remember something, often the food that you haven't smelled or tasted for a long time, it brings back the memories like suddenly a flood, right? For me, growing up in Taiwan, 
it's stinky tofu. And if you ever had stinky tofu, it's basically tofu that smells like dirty feet. But it tastes so good. All right? And every time I have stinky tofu, it takes me back to dirty... No, it takes me back to, to Taiwan. Uh, Carol saw a Karen yesterday. For her, it's Kingston biscuits. You know those Arnott's Kingston biscuits? It's because when she was growing up, they never had like treats and biscuits, unlike what we give our kids, which is like sugary food all the time. But her parents were healthier. And uh, they would get Kingston biscuits as a treat when they went on family holidays to their grandparents' place by the beach. So it, it, that for her is what Kingston biscuits and the taste associated. See? Food is memories. Now, I, I could go on forever, but that's not the point. The point is, there are different aspects, aren't there, about what makes food wonderful. And you, when you see the different aspects, it just adds to your enjoyment of food. Now, I say that because as we've been looking at Leviticus, especially over the last couple of weeks, in the early chapters of the book of Leviticus, we saw that there have been five different kinds of offerings. In these first six chapters, five different types of sacrifices. And a lot of people are like, they seem so repetitive. Aren't they saying the same thing? Well, the answer is, and what we've been looking at is, as you look at them in detail, the answer is no. They say different things. They're, they're offering, like the different aspects of food, they're offering different um, insights, different aspects into the nature of relationship with God. Each one of them present a different angle. Like, for example, there's the, the taste side of food and the social aspect of food and the nutritional aspect. You know, these offer different uh, angles. As I said last week, if you were here, I you know, introduced my wonderful, long thought through Pokemon illustration. You know, since Pokemon Go came out, I was like, how can I use this for a sermon? Don't tell me if it failed, because I'm just going to pretend it succeeded. But the idea that, um, that, that Leviticus is like God's augmented reality for His people. He's getting us to see things, getting his people to see things they wouldn't otherwise see. Sort of like Pokemon Go, you know, helps you see Pokemon in the real world, but it's not real. Anyway, forget about that. Um, uh, right? All of these offerings, as long, as, as, along with the book of Leviticus, trying to get us to see things that we otherwise wouldn't see. And these offerings present different aspects. And what we're trying to see with these offerings is this. How does relationship with God work? How does relationship with God work when He, as we saw in the very first sermon of Leviticus with Pastor Jono, when He is a holy God, completely perfect and pure, and we even at our best moments are not? How can that be possible? Well, these offerings offer, or give us different aspects into how that works. Now, um, I showed you this last week. We're going through Leviticus, um, not just from beginning to end. We're going through based on these topics, holiness of God, sin, repentance, atonement, mission, because we want Leviticus to show us how that's really the logic of the gospel of Jesus, the good news of Jesus. We're up to the first one in repentance, and we're looking at the last of the five offerings I pointed out before, what's called the guilt offering. And the perspective that this offering will give us today is that sin racks up a debt, right? That's the unique perspective of this offering. Sin puts us in debt, both to God and to the people that we might sin against. And so if, if it racks up a debt, then, then, then it must be, the solution must be some sort of compensation. And how compensation worked in ancient Israel was through sacrifice, and as we read earlier, acts of repentance. But we'll look at that in a bit more detail now. So if you've got Zach Pages, that's the electronic bulletin we use, the app. It's a free app. The paper bulletins tell you how to access that. Or if you've got a paper one, uh, we're going to follow the three points there in your outlines. I'm going to pray, 
and then we'll have a look at point number one. Father God, thank you for bringing us here, whether we're regulars or visitors, whether we know and love Jesus and are sure of that, or whether we're on our journey and we're not really sure. I pray that whoever we are, you might speak to us about how we can have a relationship with you. In Jesus' name, amen. Three things we're going to talk about. What kind of offering this one particularly is? What does that show us about the nature of repentance? Because I think this is the focus of this offering. And then last of all, what difference does Jesus make? So firstly, what kind of offering, right? Uh, what we do with these offerings is, you know, if they all are offer different aspects, then we want to compare and contrast, don't we? We want to say, well, how is this one different to the ones we've seen before? So when you do that, these are the things you, 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 you realize. And the first thing you realize is that this offering really stresses the idea of value. Right? It really stresses the idea of value. Now, these verses that uh, Anne just read, uh, you might notice it's like three sections, three cases, examples where this offering is needed. The cases are slightly different. I'll look at that in a moment. But the nature of the offering is the same. So let's just look at case number one and you'll get an idea. So let's have a read of those verses again. Keep your Bibles open or Zach pages and you'll see the passage there. Verse 14 of chapter 5. The Lord said to Moses, When anyone is unfaithful to the Lord by sinning unintentionally in regard to any of the Lord's holy things, they're to bring to the Lord as a penalty a ram from the flock, one without defect and of the proper value in silver, according to the sanctuary shekel. It's a guilt offering. They must make restitution for what they failed to do in regard to the holy things, pay an additional penalty of a fifth of its value and give it to the priests. The priests will make atonement for them with the ram as a guilt offering, and they will be forgiven. All right, uh, if you were here with us the last two weeks, we looked at two other offerings, the burnt offering two weeks ago, last week the purification offering. The first thing you might notice is that there's very little detail in this offering about the nature of the ritual itself. You don't get details about how you slaughter, what to do with the blood, what to do with the fat in the intestines, you know, what to do with the meat. You get that in the other ones. Because unlike the other two offerings, this one seems to focus particularly on the idea of value. How much is this offering worth? And so only one kind of animal is accepted here, which I gather would be quite valuable. It's a ram. A ram is a male lamb that hasn't been castrated. Sorry, I can't think of a better word for that. So, right? so it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a fertile, productive male lamb. They're worth quite a lot to the flock, as you can imagine, right? It's a male ram, and it doesn't matter which category, this is the only one accepted. Not like the other offerings, where if you were poorer, you can offer something else. If you um, fell into a different category of sin, like we looked at last week with the purification, you offered something else. There's only one kind of animal from the flock acceptable here. It's a lamb, that's a male lamb, a ram. Because the value is the important one in this one. So you see verse 15, this is the only one that mentions, uh, verse 15, the proper value in silver. According to the sanctuary shekel, the shekel is, the, um, uh, is their currency, and there, there seems to be a, a, a currency that was associated just with the priests and the offerings you bring. So you have to exchange your money for the sanctuary currency. Now, that idea you get also again in verse 18, and you'll get it again in chapter 6, verse 6. So if every one of these cases it brings, it talks about the value. That seems to be important. The cost is important. And that makes perfect sense because, as I said before, this offering, the aspect, this perspective that this offering brings is the idea, right, that sin incurs a debt. And so the key to this offering is therefore about paying the debt or what we call restitution, making up for something you've done wrong or compensation, all right, for paying back 
something that you've lost or someone else's loss. The key idea, if it's on restitution or compensation, or another big word, reparation, all meaning the same thing, right, means that value is important. And you see that in chapter 5, verse 16, right? Um, you've got to repay the value of what's been lost to the priesthood. And then you add how much? One-fifth or 20% on top, right? Value. And then you see that again in chapter 6, later on we'll see, you repay someone that you might have defrauded or robbed, the full value plus 20%. Right? This, all, this offering is all about value because it's all about compensation. Now, as I said before, there are three sections. And so the three examples it gives of when this offering might be offered. Um, verses 14 to 16, uh, the section I just read again, uh, it has to do with unintentional but known specific sin against what's called holy things. And I'll explain that. I'll try to explain that in a moment. But this is unintentional but specific sins against holy things. Then the next session, 17 to 19, to the end of the chapter, is unintentional, but not specific sins against holy things. Right? Unintentional, but not specific. That's the difference. And then the last section, which is chapter 6, 1 to 7, have to do with all kinds of intentional sins that have to do with other people. All right, so let's look at them in a little bit of detail in a moment, uh, right now. So verses 14 to 16, it's, unintentional but known specific sins against holy things. Now, there's a question of what that means. How do you sin against a holy thing? It seems to be that these sins have to do with God's commandments surrounding uh, the priesthood and what jobs and things they performed. Because God had a way of, especially with the priesthood, they didn't, um, they weren't, the, the priests weren't allowed to own lands. They couldn't be farmers. They didn't have any other income. All of their income and their food actually came from the sacrificial system. All right? So this sin could be that a person accidentally, you know, brings an offering. And part of that offering was supposed to go to the priest to feed them. But this person forgets about that. It was an accident, unintentional. You know, ends up taking the, the meat home or accidentally burns it all up so the priest doesn't get any. All right, it could be something like that. Something that's also supposed to be uh, sacrificed and given partially to the priest, unintentionally, accidentally forgetting. That could be one of the reasons. Or it could be that um, they forgot to offer us an offering after fulfilling a vow. So in the ancient world, ancient Israel, if you said, you know, God, um, if you give me a son and he's handsome like me, um, then I'm going to give to you, you know, an offering of, of, of my, my best harvest, mangoes. I don't know. All right? And then you have your son, and he is as good looking as you are. Uh, but, you know, in the hectic first few months of childbirth and not getting enough sleep, you totally forget about the mangoes. Right? That could be what? Okay? Because these mangoes would otherwise go to the priest. I don't think they ate mangoes back then, but anyway, you know what I mean. Okay? So that could be w one way you sin against holy. Or it could be having to do with tithes. So tithes were 10%. Every Israelite person who owned lands and had a harvest was to give 10% of their harvest and income to God because God would use that to feed the priests. All right, you got that? All right, so it could be associated with these kind of things because um, all of these seem to not just be about unintentional sins, right? It's, it's not that you deliberately ripped the priest off. You just forgot. It's an accident. But also, all of these can be valued. That's the point. You can actually pinpoint a value. I should have given the mangoes. I should have given 10%. There's a value number to it. Because without the value, you couldn't repay it and you couldn't add 20%. You can't calculate 20% of nothing, can you, right? 
Right, so that's what happens with this first category. This is what it's supposed to deal with. But then you've got another category, right? Because, look, Leviticus itself has got heaps of laws, really specific ones. Like, who can keep up with all of them? There's a chance that you'll unintentionally stuff up, and it'll be unintentional, but you won't exactly know what you've stuffed up in. That's possible as well. Now, the second category, verses 17 to 19, seems to deal with that. Right? You've unintentionally sinned against some aspect of the holy things and the rituals, but you can't really pinpoint what. It, it's not a specific value. And so the second section deals with what you do with that. And it involves a ram offering as well, but you'll notice in this section there's no value plus 20% because you can't calculate what you're unsure of. All right? That seems to cover the other section. But then the third category, as I said, chapter 6, verses 1 to 7 is the third category. And this is a really interesting one because we've moved now from unintentional sins, which actually we looked at last week as well. And now we're looking at intentional sins. Things that you've thought about and you've done on purpose and it's specifically not against the priesthood, but against any other person. Now I want to say here, it doesn't cover all types of intentional sins. In that, if you think about it, most of our sins are intentional, yeah? Uh, and there's just so many of them. So why these particular ones? I think, again, because it's, these ones can be valued, right? You can put a number value to it, and because that's part of the purpose here. So it's not that all other intentional sins aren't included, but he wants to give examples where value can be calculated. So have a look at it again. Uh, chapter 6, verse 1. Let's just read these verses again. The Lord said to Moses, If anyone sins and is unfaithful to the Lord by, what, what is he doing? Deceiving a neighbor about something entrusted to them or left in their care or about something stolen or if they cheat their neighbor or if they find lost property and lie about it or if they swear falsely about any such sin that people may commit when they sin in any of these ways and realize their guilt. They must return what had been stolen or taken by extortion or was entrusted to them or the lost property they found or whatever it was they swore falsely about. They must make restitution in full out of fifth to the value of it and give it all to the owner on the day they present their guilt offering. All right, even though these don't cover all the intentional sins, I want you to see that these are actually pretty serious intentional sins. Like if you were the victim of any of these, you wouldn't be too happy, would you? I mean, look at some of them. Lying, stealing, extortion. You know who extorts stuff? Like gangsters. That's, you know, this is like serious stuff. And then you've got um, lying about it in, in what's, uh, I think, court, basically, in a public, so perjury. For those of you who study law, I mean, perjury is a pretty serious offense, yeah? Okay, so these are, these are serious things. Last week, as we saw, the purification offerings had to do with unintentional sins, though I did mention, I think, if it says that about unintentional sins, imagine what it says about intentional sins. But the point here is that God also makes, allow, He also provides for people who do intentionally wrong others, and serious intentional wrongs. He allows and he pr provides in his mercy sacrifice to deal with the guilt of that. And as I said before, these don't cover all the examples of intentional sins. These are the ones where value can be determined because here, remember, it's you pay back the full value plus 20%. So summary of this particular offering, right? How is it different? What's the, I think, um, I, I know that our English Bible is translated as guilt offering. The headings in your paper Bibles might be guilt offering. But I think probably more helpful is is to, to, to call it, and in fact, that's what the word guilt can also mean in the original, is not just guilt offering, because in a sense, all sin incurs guilt. But this offering, I think, particularly is about restitution. 
So I think best to call it a restitution offering or a reparation offering or even if you want a compensation offering. Because the aspect of sin that this offering deals with is this idea that sin incurs a debt both to God and to my neighbor. And if it incurs a debt, then it needs to be paid. So we've got three perspectives on sin so far. We've looked at three offerings, haven't we? If you like, this is how it works. The burnt offering gives one perspective. That's, that it's the relational perspective. This is the default offering, chapter one, burnt offering. So relationally, sin breaks our relationship with God. And the offering provides an opportunity for us to be reconciled, to be brought back into relationship. That's the burnt offering. Last week, we looked at the purification offering. If burnt offering is relational, purification offering is maybe a little bit medical. Yeah? Because sin is like germs that contaminate. And if you're contaminated, you need to be decontaminated, or in ritual terms, you need to be purified. That was the aspect we looked at last week. This week, this restitution, reparation offering is commercial. That's the third aspect we see, that sin incurs a debt and you need compensation. Now, this perspective on sin, I think, is is worth us spending a little bit of time thinking about and applying. And in a sense, reminds us, I think, I don't know if you've ever thought about this, that all sin in some sense is stealing. Have you thought about this? All sin is in some sense stealing. I'm going to quote from a book that I read a while ago. It's a great book. It's called The Kite Runner. It's not a Christian book, but it's a really good book. They made a movie out of it. Um, Anyway, there's a quote that says this, and I think I largely agree with it. One of the characters says this, there is only one sin, no, sorry, there is only one sin, only one, and that is theft. Every other sin is a variation of theft. When you kill a man, you steal a life. You steal his wife's right to a husband. You rob his children of a father. When you tell a lie, you steal someone's right to the truth. When you cheat, you steal the right to fairness. There is no act more wretched than stealing. You may not agree 100% with it, but I think it's got a point. And I think we could take it further. All sin is a sense stealing from God, isn't it? Now, why is that? Why, Why is sin stealing from God? Well, it's because when we break God's will and His commands and the way He wants us to live, He who is our creator and rightful ruler, then when you break this command, you are robbing God of what? His honor, aren't you? You rob God of His glory. You rob God of His right to be worshipped and loved and obeyed. And if you've been part of this church, you'll know we often talk about sin as idolatry, right? Driven by our desire to be God instead of God. What's that but theft? I steal God's divinity, His right to be God, and make myself God. You see, all sin in some sense is stealing. And I think this, this passage in Leviticus helps us see this. Now, as I said last week, um, when, when we see these different aspects of sin, it's not so that we can just feel really bad and guilty. But today, especially, and that's what the topic of today's sermon is especially about, is so that we can see what true repentance, turning away from sin, what repentance looks like. So that's what we're going to look at now. Point number two, What does this teach us about repentance? What does it look like? And I think there's three things that mark true repentance. Remorse, confession, and action. The first one, remorse. Remorse is feeling sorry, feeling the weight of what you've done wrong, feeling guilty. As we saw last week, this offering points to the role of your conscience, doesn't it? Did you notice that as we read it? All right, it's not just the unintentional sins. 
right? The intentional sins. Your conscience alerts you. You realize your guilt. That comes up a few times this passage. And that's what it's talking about. Remorse. When you feel the weight of what you've done wrong and you feel sorry for having done it. That's what it's talking about. Genuine remorse. And this offering actually encourages the guilty to take the initiative. If you feel bad about your sin, this offering encourages you to take the initiative and confess it in your remorsefulness. And you realize that when you compare this offering to uh, another part of the Bible in Exodus. So in Exodus chapter 22, you don't have to turn to it, but the same kinds of sin as chapter 6 is talked about. You know, if you rob someone, if you defraud someone, if you extort. Um, except in Exodus 22, it says, if that happens, right, then the penalty is you pay back in full plus double, plus 200% penalty. But here, Leviticus says, you pay back in full plus 20%. Now, some people say, well, it's because the Bible is inconsistent. It's contra-. Well, it's not really, actually. Exodus is talking about the case when it happens and you get caught. And you haven't taken the initiative to confess. The penalty is higher. Here, in Leviticus, it's talking about when you, out of your, your, your guilty conscience and remorse, decide to come forward, even though no one else knows at this point. Or even though they haven't caught you out yet. In that case, the penalty is lower. You see, it's actually encouraging remorseful hearts and repentant hearts. And we know, don't we? Because if someone's con- con- cornered into a confession, because its consequences are now out, like, you know, the U.S. swim team, Ryan Lochte, it's been found out that, you know, there's video footage of them not having been robbed. And, you know, when they confess now, you're always a bit like, oh, okay, yeah, it's just because you got caught, right? A few years ago. Uh, one of the greatest cycling heroes of a past era, Lance Armstrong, won seven, seven Tour de France's. The, car, the highest before him was five. Right, he won seven. But then in 2012, he finally confessed with Oprah on a special uh, television exclusive that he, like he, they'd been saying for years, he had been doping. He had been using performance-enhancing drugs. And not just been doping, he'd been part of this massive cover-up. And he'd been a, a huge bully. He'd dragged people to court uh, help uh, cause some people to be bankrupt. He destroyed former friends just to cover up. He finally confessed in 2012. Now, that may seem like a good thing, except by then, they had already found him guilty. He'd been stripped of his seven-tour victories, and everyone knew that he was a doper by then. So, do you know what I mean? Like, y- y- people doubt the genuineness of his confession, and they should. Because by the time he confessed, he also did it his way, very controlled, with Oprah, right? You always have reason to doubt, I think, the genuineness of remorse if it's just because you've been caught out. Because it's very possible, and you you and I have been in this situation, sometimes you feel bad, not because of what you've done, but because of the results of what you've done. That's a very different thing, isn't it? I mean, he could be feeling really bad because he's been caught and he's been stripped of his seven tour titles. That, That should feel pretty bad. But it doesn't mean he really feels bad about having doped in the first place. Do you see? There's a difference. And genuine remorse that's a part of repentance is primarily remorseful, not about the consequences of having been caught out or having lost something because of the consequences, but you're, you're, you're genuinely remorseful of the sin itself. In Psalm 51, that famous psalm where David, King David, he, he, he writes this confession because he had just committed adultery with a woman he wasn't married to. And this woman was actually married to someone else and he arranged for her husband to be killed. So it's murder and adultery. 
he confesses in, in, in Psalm 51. He asks God for forgiveness. An amazing line he says there, which always is a bit baffling. His line is, talking to God, against you, you only have I sinned. Which is kind of what, you, you've, you've killed someone's husband and you've slept with her by force and you're saying your sin is only against God. Now, I don't think David is actually saying that's the only person he sinned against, but I think his confession gets something right. It's not just the consequences of what he did that he regrets. He knows that at the heart and the core of his sin is an offense against God. Right? And that's genuine remorse. When you see at the end of the day, all sin is sin against the majesty in heaven. Regardless of the consequences, regardless of whether you've been caught yet, you feel the burden and the weight of sorrow that I've sinned against my Creator, my God, and if you're a Christian, your Father in heaven, you've grieved the Holy Spirit. All true repentance starts with genuine remorse. But then it leads naturally to confession, doesn't it? Now, these chapters don't talk about confession as a part of this, uh, this offering. But in a parallel chapter in Numbers on the screen for you, you'll see it there. Let's have a look. The Lord said to Moses, Say to the Israelites, Any man or woman who wrongs another in any way and so is unfaithful to the Lord is guilty and must what? Confess the sin they have committed. They must make full restitution for the wrong they have done, add a fifth to the value of it and give it to all to the person they have wronged. You see, the same kind of thing, but this one mentions confession. All right, so it's not just remorse over our sin. True repentance will lead from remorse into confession. Confession of sin is admitting your guilt. And it's genuine when it doesn't attach the admission with buts or ifs, you know. Yeah, God, I was really sorry about road raging, but that guy was such a bad driver. Ah, you know, that's not really a confession, is it? All right, confession is admitting your guilt and then asking for forgiveness. Now, I take it that most of us, especially if you've been coming to this church, and if you're a Christian, that confession is something you're pretty happy with, because, or at least it's something that you do regularly. At this church, we do it corporately every single week. Because confession to God yeah, I mean, that's difficult when we have to reckon with sin for the first time, but it can also become such a habit that you think, yeah, I'm, I'm happy to confess to God. He knows anyway. I'm, I'm nothing to hide from Him. But what we find really hard, though, is, it, is, is taking that step further. When confession needs to go outside of me and God, especially because sin does affect others, how comfortable do you feel about confessing it to someone else? I'm not talking about a little confession booth in a Catholic church. I'm talking about the fact that sin does affect others. Do you stop it with me and God? Or when it's a habitual sin, sin that you might keep in the dark, in secret, often sexual sins are, often addictions are. And confessing to God is great, is a first step. But do you know what? Confession to God and only God and not involving and confessing that to other people means that you just get to keep that sin in the dark. And guess what? That doesn't help the sin die. Because habitual sin, especially, is a lot like fungus, right? It likes the dark. Put it out into the light. All of a sudden, it's a lot easier to get rid of. So my question to you is, have you ever thought about confession that's not just limited to the vertical, me and God? Yes, confess to God. That's the first step. Do you need, especially if you've hurt other people, do you need to confess it to others? Now, at this point, you might be thinking, well, does it mean that every time I sin, i got to get up here at church and, you know, confess it? No, 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 I'm not talking about that. That's what they do in little cults, and it's kind of scary, all right? We're not, we're not a cult. 
Um, the, the first question is, who does your sin affect? That's a, good, that's a good rule of thumb, right? Who does your sin affect? Now, it could be that, you know, you've robbed someone or stolen from someone, offended someone. Now, it's easy, angry someone. But you know what? It, it can be more than just that. It can be more than just that. Because, for example, a few years ago, a, a ministry friend of mine actually called me up to confess that he'd been jealous of my ministry. He didn't have to do that, did he? I would never have known. But he knew that that sin was not just a him and God issue, jealousy. It was a him and me issue. Even though I had no feelings about this at all, I was completely oblivious. But he confessed to me and asked me for forgiveness. That was such a godly and big-hearted thing for him to do. You see what I mean? Jealousy. Is that something you need to take out of the closet and confess? Who does it affect? And if, the, if it's a more public sin, then it needs to be a little bit more public in confession, all right? Start with the private, the people it affects. But if it's public, again, like the U.S. swim team, I mean, they told everyone we got robbed at gunpoint. I mean, their confession should be public, right? And probably also, the more public the person, the more public the confession needs to be, okay? But for most of us, it's just taking that one extra step. Does this sin affect someone else? Chances are it does. Who do I need to confess to? Right? Lance Armstrong, as I said, he made a public confession, but it was very much on his terms. As far as we know, all the people he burnt, all the people he destroyed, he never privately apologized to them. We have good reason to believe that his confession, his repentance wasn't genuine. And he certainly didn't take the last step. The last step is action, right? Um, this shows us, remember, it's a restitution offering. True repentance will follow up with actions that restore or compensate what have been lost if it is something that can be compensated. Not all sin can, but sometimes it can. You remember the story of the tax collector Zacchaeus. Steve Chong spoke about him a few weeks ago, yeah? After he met Jesus, he said, Lord, I give half of my possessions to the poor, and if I've stolen anything of anyone, I will pay back 400% or four times. Remember, Leviticus says he only had to do 20%. He said, I'm going to do 400%. Guaranteed, he was not a rich person after that. Okay, so the point is, where possible, repentance takes action that is compensation, especially if it's financially able to come back. So, if you, have you stolen from your employer? Right? Have you stolen from your employer? And it's not always, yeah, I've, you know, I've nicked some stationery, I don't know. Um, could be that you've taken sickies. I know we have a sicky culture, it's like Australians take sickies for any reason, but you know what? If you take a sickie, you're not actually sick. That's actually stealing. Just put it out there. Okay? Because those things can be calculated. Have you stolen from your employees? Recently, one of my favorite restaurants, Mamak, who do the rotis, have been fined for underpaying employees, well under award range. Right? It's like 7-Eleven. I mean, if they were Christians, they would pay back their employees plus add 20%, or probably 200% since they got caught. All right? So have you thought about that? When action can be taken to compensate. Now, all sins can't be put into monetary terms. In fact, most sins probably can't. And so you've got to be thinking a little bit more creatively. How do I make restitution? How can I compensate? I'll give you just one example. Guys, my age and stage of life, who are husbands and dads, it's really easy to get caught up in your career, isn't it? And so you rob your family, your spouse, your children of the love and care and the attention and the time that you ought to give them as husband and father. And you realize, I've, I've done that. 
and you're remorseful and you, you confess that to your spouse, you confess that to your children, will you take a next step? How do you make up for that? I mean, you can't buy back lost time, but you certainly can change how your work, you can quit jobs, you can change jobs. You, do you know what I mean? I think true repentance will take that. You, you can't just say, yeah, I'm really sorry for that and then still work 80 hours a week. It just doesn't work like that. Right? That doesn't cover all kinds of sin. The point is that true repentance is not just talk. There's action involved. Now, I want to hear say especially, remorse and confession is particularly not enough when cases of addiction or abuse are involved. Right? When cases of addiction can be drug addiction, it can be gambling, it can be alcohol dependence, it can be anything. It can be abuse, it can be physical abuse, any kind of abuse. When that's involved, you know, too many people hurt by people with addiction and abuse have been too quick to give the benefit of the doubt because they'll always be, they'll often be remorseful, they'll often be con- you know be confession, but the dif- the thing is they don't have the action to back it up. And so these poor victims will say, yeah, yeah, yeah I'll, I'll forgive you again, and then they'll get abused again, and then they'll you know what I mean. I want to say, if you're a victim of someone who has been abusive or uh, who has been struggling with an addiction, then you need to make sure that there is action and follow-up. And if you are someone who is, is, is recovering from addiction or abuse, right, then you need to see it's not enough for you to feel bad and confess. You need follow-up. Gambling means you've got to get into a program. You've got to have accountability. You've got to not be able to access your money and let someone else. You know what I mean? Unless that happens... Right? Don't, don't assume that the gambler's got to sort out. Do you see what I mean? Right? Here is a really clear example where too many people go back into being victims of abuse and addiction because they've been too quick to accept what's actually not true repentance. Last point, what difference does Jesus make? Well, you probably know where this is going because every week we've seen that Jesus is the one perfect sacrifice. Whatever sacrifice you're looking at, whatever offering, Jesus fulfills that. No surprises there. What might be surprising is where this particular sacrifice, the rest, restoration or sorry, the reparation or the re- restitution offering, where that idea is picked up when it's referred to Jesus. I didn't realize this before until this week. And it's surprising where it comes from. It's from a very familiar passage, actually. I'll show you. Isaiah 53. This is the Baba do Baba passage for those who know Collins and Pounder. Um, but he was pierced for our transgressions, and it's a prophecy about Jesus, written about 700 years before Jesus. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. By his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And here it is. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin. Now that offering for sin in the original, is this offering, the restitution offering, the compensation offering, the reparation offering. See, Jesus' death is the perfect reparation, restitution offering for sin. Because all of our sin, as I said, incurs a debt ultimately to God. We rob God of His glory, of worship, of honor. And the price for that debt is too great for any of us to pay. There's a myth that people believe that if I die and as long as my good deeds outweigh my bad, I'll be okay. Well, that's a myth. Because if you are facing a perfect God, there is no way that your good can ever outweigh your bad. I don't care if you're Gandhi or Mother Teresa. God sees and knows every thought of our hearts. 
how is it possible for our good to outweigh our bad? This is a debt you can never, I can never repay. But see, good news of Christianity is that Jesus pays it all. See, God is pleased that Jesus' death pays that debt we owe and he wipes it clean fully, finally, completely when he says it is finished on the cross. And this means the vertical debt we owe God in sin doesn't ever need to be paid. And that's why there's no more need for reparation offerings. We don't need to offer rams, which is good because the only ram I know is a home loan. All right? It's already paid in full. You can never earn this forgiveness. And don't misunderstand me. While we're talking about true repentance, true repentance does not earn forgiveness. Right? It can be the truest repentance, remorse, confession, restitution. It doesn't earn forgiveness. That's actually the Catholic view of penance. That somehow by doing penance, saying Hail Marys and our fathers actually helps to repair what you've done and earns. No, it doesn't. Jesus earns our forgiveness completely, finally, by his finished work. Repentance, along with trusting in Jesus' faith, is the way we receive the forgiveness that he has already won for us. When Zacchaeus said, Jesus, I'm going to give half my possessions to the poor, I'll pay back four times, he said that after Jesus said, come down from the tree, I'm having dinner at your house. Not before. Jesus didn't say, uh, don't come down yet. What are you going to do about the money you robbed? Oh, yeah, Jesus, I'm going to return. Okay, now come down. No, 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 it doesn't work like that. Jesus forgives him. And then out of the overflow of his love, of Jesus' love for him, Zacchaeus says, yes. Okay, do you see? There's an order. It doesn't earn forgiveness. Only Jesus does. But as I said before, these chapters of Leviticus, if it teaches us one thing, is that there is such a thing as genuine repentance. And it looks a certain way because, as we saw in the Lance Armstrong example, it is possible for repentance to be false, to be shallow. So back to you, back to the question. Whatever sin it is that God is asking you, maybe today you feel the remorse and you need to confess it. Maybe it's a sin that you felt remorseful and confessed, but you've not taken the last step of restitution, of action, right? What is genuine repentance going to look like for you? Let me tell you a case of genuine repentance. Andrew Chan grew up like a lot of many of us. Uh, he grew up in a second-generation migrant home in the suburbs of Sydney in Homebush. But unlike some of us, he got in with the wrong crowd. After leaving school, he became uh, a drug addict. Well, he was first a user, an addict, but then he became a dealer, and then he became a smuggler. In 2005, Andrew Chan and eight others were arrested in Bali for trying to smuggle heroin out of Bali to Australia. They were called the Bali Nine. Probably heard of that before. They were all convicted and all sentenced to death. Now, sometime soon after his arrest, he gets put in prison. Chan meets Jesus. He becomes a Christian. And his life, I tell you, is truly, genuinely changed. So whereas before he was this violent, foul-mouthed, angry young man, he changed completely. He began to counsel other inmates, helping them. Uh, those who were sick, he spent time with them. Helping. He ran church services in the prison. He's a modern-day Zacchaeus. In fact, in 2015, he was ordained as a Christian pastor. And, and, and such was his change that, um, most people don't know this, when his death sentence was finally set, at least two Indonesian prisoners, inmates, who weren't on death row, they offered to be executed in Chan's place. 
because they saw this guy was different and they'd been helped by Chan in significant ways. One of them wrote to the government and said, take me instead. But that didn't happen. And Andrew Chan faced the firing squad in April 2015. And before his death, guess what song he was singing? 10,000 Reasons. We sing that at church too. He's a guy I'm pretty sure we will see in heaven. See, Christianity is about the gospel. The gospel means good news. And the good news is this. Forgiveness is available to anyone, anyone, whoever you are. If you repent, even the worst of sinners, even the Andrew Chans, especially for the Andrew Chans of this world. So friends, whoever you are, you may be a Christian, you may not be Christian. You may think, I used to be a Christian. I don't know where you've come from or who you are. But it is not too late. It's never too late to repent. Genuinely repent. Because Jesus has already paid your debt. So go to Him in faith and repentance. Take your remorse, the weight of guilt, and take it to Him. Confess it to Him. Confess it freely to anyone else you need to confess it to. Because you know God is already willing to forgive you. And take that action that you need. Whatever it takes, I want to make it right. If I can make it right, I'll make it right. And rest in the completeness of that forgiveness because Jesus has paid it all. We're going to sing. It's going to band up here. Sing about everything that I've just spoken of. Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. Why don't we stand? Why don't we sing about this?